What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, it's Fallon. You're listening to the Heartbroken Podcast. And I want to thank those that did leave some feedback on my reviews on Apple Podcast. Greatly appreciated. Uh, this one says, I've been listening to the podcast since it started. It's part of my Friday ritual. Thank you, Fallon and guests, for sharing your stories. Yes, thank you to all my guests that share their stories. I mean, this podcast would get really boring if it was just me sharing stories. Thank you for being a champion and bringing these tough and real topics to the conversation. Thank you for listening. Keep it up, girl. Um, that was another one I got. And a lot of people really were touched by Rebecca's story last week with postpartum depression. If you didn't get a chance to listen to it, I highly recommend you go back and check it out because it was so moving. I mean, we've had so many stories throughout my entire run with this podcast. It's hard to point out, you know, I found myself doing this the other day. Someone said, hey, can you check out my podcast? I said, sure. Where should I start listening? Someone asked me that question. I don't know where I would tell them to start listening. I think you have to just listen and some will hit you in different ways than you expected. Even ones that are over topics that don't affect you or have never affected you. I um, also wanted to read this one. I find myself every week just being sucked into your podcast. I'm not sure within both seasons that I have a handful of times where I didn't cry. So many emotional stories and I appreciate the relatable stories. Absolutely. I think the past couple of weeks have really gotten me. And today when I read the email that I received, uh, because I get asked a lot, how do people get on your podcast? You just email me. It's Fallon, uh, F-A-L-E-N at KDWB.com is how you can submit. I am about to wrap up as the podcast wraps up, um, probably in June or July. And so I have a lot of them scheduled already, including one that is I, I'm trying to find a time to get them in, but it's it's basically two women that found out they were dating the same guy over the course of four and five years, and they just found out in the shock. And it, it is, I'm, I'm trying to get them both scheduled to be on with me soon. I uh, just have to find a date that works, so that's, that's coming up soon. Uh, but that's not what today's episode is about, so we'll get into today's episode. Lydia joins me today on the Heartbroken Podcast, and Lydia, I, I mean, when I read your email, I was like, Oh my gosh, like I, I just, my jaw dropped. Tell me a little bit about what we're going to hear in your episode today. Well, when, uh, after my husband and me were married and the pandemic hit, we didn't think anything could get worse. And so we got <laughs> pregnant and, um, about when I was six months pregnant, something, um, horrible and traumatic, uh, changed our lives for forever. I'm Fallon and this is the Heartbroken Podcast. Everyone has experienced heartbreak in their life, some more than others. Often, we feel like we're bothering our family or friends when we talk about it. I started this podcast to help those going through heartbreak share their stories. Sometimes it's easier to share with someone they don't know. I hope it's somewhat therapeutic for them. Maybe it gives them some closure. And to those listening, I hope it helps you feel less alone. Thank you for listening to the Heartbroken Podcast. Okay, 
let's go back, Liddy, just to get to know you a little bit and and your husband. So tell me a little bit about how you guys met, how long you've been together, and a little bit about your relationship. Well, um, I actually was married um, before this, but um, so I have a son, and I met my husband now um, online by accident, wasn't on purpose. Uh, so we have we dated for about three years. Um, I actually met him while he was a few years in recovery um, that uh, from heroin, actually. Um, he was strong in, in that and doing a lot of things in the sober community and all of that and had a really strong um, recovery. And so we started slowly dating for a while. And then we got married three years after that. Um, and he had owned his own business. He had with a, a sober friend that he was best friends with. And, and he was doing really, really well with that. Um, so we got married in not this February, last February, 2020. Um, and oh, like right before everything hit then. Yeah, it was, it was literally just starting and we were hearing it in the news while we were in, we actually got married in Florida. So we were hearing it all in the news and like, Oh, okay. We didn't think anything of it at the time. Um, and then like a month or two later, it was shut down. Um, yeah. Got lucky on that part. So throughout the three years of you guys dating, um, were things uh, pretty consistent with his recovery? I mean, obviously he's a business owner, um, but sometimes people can still have a successful outward life and, and be struggling behind the scenes. Did you feel like, you know, he, you said he had a really strong recovery story, but did it seem to be continuing quite well through your three years of dating? Yeah, our three years were really, really well. Like he, uh, he was still going to meetings. He had helped. Um, so with friends stay sober. Um, he was living with uh, three other guys that were in his um, sober home before we met and doing the business and keeping busy and he was doing great. And then all of a sudden he decided that it was, you know, his addiction was heroin and not, um, not alcohol. So he started to try like a beer every once in a while. And I wasn't too happy with that idea, but I didn't know much about addiction. And he said it was going to be okay. And he didn't have an issue with alcohol. So it started out really, really small here and there and yeah, gradually I grew. I don't know a ton about addiction either. I mean, I've had um, addiction with um, family members, um, but it's, it is interesting because I, I, that's probably something I didn't know either. Um, if you were addicted to something like heroin, does it really hurt you to have a beer? But then I'm imagining that it can be a slippery slope. It definitely is much more of a slippery slope once you are already an, an addict to something else. You tend to cover it up with another thing, as well as I think when he was addicted to heroin, I think alcohol was an issue then too, but it just wasn't as big of, a, of an issue and he didn't notice it until now, until he was sober. Yeah. So that started before you were married or after you got married? Um, the drinking started right before we got married um, and it, it was under control. He wasn't drinking every day. It was just drinking and he drank a little too much here and there, but it wasn't like out of control by any means. Mm -hmm. And then um, after we got married, it was a month later, right before I got pregnant. Um, we were actively trying at that point. Um, and he all of a sudden just went downhill fast, very, very fast and got into a, and got mugged, um, 
but while he was drunk, intoxicated, um, and was his leg was broken, everything was stolen. He's a diabetic, so his pump was pulled out of his body and stolen because those are, you know, a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a type 1, so he had a pump on him and, you know, broke his leg. And at that time, he lied to me, and it was, you know, just a regular random assault. Um, but really, it was a drunken incident that caused so something where he had gotten into an altercation with someone and that was the result like they beat him up basically because of a drunk altercation right correct and i thought you know because i can see him getting lippy if he's had some alcohol but he didn't to him, what he told me was very little alcohol and it's just weird random thing happened and so you know we didn't think of anything too much of it he healed from his broken leg um so everything was fine. And then we decided that he would go into a sober living for a month, a month and a half, just to kind of restart up his recovery again and be like, this is probably not, alcohol is not the way to go. And he did that for a month and a half. And a month and a half, I found out I was pregnant. Um, mm. So about halfway through, he was in Milwaukee doing that while I was super pregnant, super nauseous. Mm. Uh, dealing with that um when he told you the story initially did you have that gut feeling that that wasn't what happened yeah I did for sure I I I, but I he never lied to me before so I took his his word but it felt weird it felt Mm -hmm. weird but I had no reason not to believe him because we've never had that issue before with lying yeah so Obviously, with it, though, he was like, okay, yeah, I need to restart. He goes into recovery. I'm going to guess things are going well while he's there. Mm -hmm. You're pregnant. You're happy. Okay, we can, like, get past this. This is like – at this point, once he goes into recovery, does he tell you the truth then? Uh, Yes. No, actually, nope. I'm sorry. He did not tell me that. That was later on that he finally told me the truth. That one was still a lingering one that took a while to get out of him. So he gets out and comes back home and you're pregnant and you're going through, I'm going to guess, the normal pregnancy things, although he can't go to doctor's appointments and stuff with you, I'm guessing. Right. Yep. Yep. So we were having the pandemic pregnancy um, where I was doing it all on my own, but it was my second kid. So to me, it wasn't that big of a deal, but yeah, he, he missed out, unfortunately. When he came oh. back, was he continuing with his sobriety or do you notice that that wasn't holding up? He was. He was, you know, I'm going to do this. And I believed him because he did it before and he just seemed happier. And he had made some friends at the sober living he was talking to and keeping sober with. And he seemed fine. Everything seemed great. He didn't seem stressed or weird. And then it was probably a, a month or so later, not even. Um, I went to a, a friend's house um, outside safely with masks on, of course. And I hadn't seen them in a while. We were all, I was barbecuing with them. And he said he would watch my son so I could have some girl time for myself after what all has happened. And he comes to get him and he is weird and sums off. And his best friend, who's his business owner, texts me and is like, I don't know, something's going on. This doesn't seem right. And I was like oh I was like pit in my stomach I'm like crap (laughs) sorry I don't know if I can say that um and 
we go to, I go to his car where he's just pacing and being bizarre and he's just acting really weird and I can't figure out what's wrong with him. And then we go inside the house and I'm talking to him and he finally admits to me, yes, I've been drinking. And I'm like, great. Okay. Well, I'm glad you admit it. Let's go home. Um, Let's bring my son home. I don't want him to be around that and try to get him in my car, but he refused. So we hung out for a little longer and he had like a beer or two at the house and I wasn't happy, but I didn't know what else to do. Um, And then it was time to go home. And I was like, we need to go home. You hop in my car, you leave your car here. We're going to go home. And I know he was like, no, I'm going to stay longer. And I finally, I got one of my older, bigger friends to kind of, you know, move him over to the car. And as soon as we got to the car, my friend walks away thinking, okay, it's all good and then he runs off and jumps in his car his own car and flies off and that was the last time I saw him walk Uh, that was uh, that scarred in my memory right now and so I didn't hear from him I called him and I called him and I called him and he wouldn't answer he turned his phone off I went home with my son put him to bed pretend like everything was okay Finally, I call his best friend who had texted me earlier, and I kept call or kept asking him like, "What should we do? Should we call the police? Like, what if he's doing something like he's driving? He shouldn't be driving." And we were trying to figure out what to do, and I get a call at like midnight um, that from the hospital that my husband had been is in emergency surgery because he had gotten a shot, and I was. I, I don't know. I was in shock. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> and because of COVID, I had to wait till um, 9 or 10 in the morning to be able to go see him. But you knew he was alive. Yes. You only knew he had been shot. Mm-hmm. And, and he was sit there. Yep. For how many hours? Nine hours? Wide awake? Going through your head. I think I was in shock. I didn't know. I, it, honestly, the the feeling in my brain was, thank God he's somewhere that he's alive. You know, at the point at that time, I didn't know what the severity was. But in my head, it was, thank God, no one else is hurt. He is somewhere safe, not dead on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that kept me calm for a, for long enough to go to the hospital. Um, So once you went in, you find out more information. Yeah, they told me to go to um, the ICU. So I go and I get there and it's super locked down, not just for COVID, but also because this was a uh, gun violence, gun, a violent crime. So he was under a different name and I had, they would only allow me in there and I had to go through a bunch of security hoops just to get to find him. And I finally get in there and get to where I'm supposed to be and I see him the nurse takes me there and he's hooked up to a million machines in a coma with a breathing tube and um and casts and bloody and I asked the nurse I'm like what so what happened what is what's going on like what how many times was she was he shot and where and she's like well we don't know yet how many times but he was so far right now we know it's 12 12 bullet wounds in him um 
Come to find out later, it was actually 16 that they had the final cut count. Um, so when you hear that, you your mind can't even go to like, how could anyone be alive after being shot 16 times? I I, I know. I like it. I have no idea how someone could be shot that many times and and live. And at that time, I just broke down and cried to the nurse. And she held me for a while while I just bawled, not knowing how this could happen to somebody and not having any answers and not knowing what happened. Yeah, because they don't know. I mean, they just have someone who's brought in and they have to treat the person, but they don't know what led to that. Yeah, exactly. They just know what the the ambulance knows and the ambulance didn't know much either. Um, Paramedics didn't know what happened. They just found him or someone called and found him um, on the side of a road in Minneapolis. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers actually near the uh, the George Floyd uh, Memorial, I think. We're not sure, but it's something about the paramedic tent that was nearby was the reason why he lived. I'm not sure on that one, though. Which he doesn't remember, obviously. Um. So when you find out, she tells you, all we know right now is he's been t- shot 12 times. Is there any information about, like, we think he'll be able to wake up from this coma. We think he'll be okay. Like, what are their, what are they telling you? At the time they were, they were somewhat positive. It didn't hit his head or anything super vital. His heart was fine. His brain, he didn't get any head injuries from it. So it was mostly his spine, his legs, his groin and his hands, um, and abdomen too. Cause that was the emergency surgery was the, uh, his they had to take a huge chunk of his digestive system or colon out colon um so he was have he was going to have to have spinal surgery he was going to have leg surgery he was going to have arm surgery um he was going to have a ton of surgeries is what they were telling me and it was kind of like minute by minute to see if he would be okay with blood transfusions and swelling and he'd get a fever from all of that and and you're uh, six months pregnant. Yeah. Just super uncomfortable in the COVID setting. Uh, I just can't even imagine, like, any part of what you were going through mentally and emotionally. Yeah, I think the hardest part is not knowing, sitting there and not being able to text my best friend, him, what was going on. I kept grabbing my phone and wanting to text him like I'm having a really hard day. And I couldn't text him because he, he wasn't there. I couldn't hear his voice for, and sitting there and not getting answers. And I would call Minneapolis police department over and over again. But you know, that was right after the, the George Floyd. Okay, I was going to say, did it, was it right after the murder of George Floyd or was it like, after what, like after that, when everyone was out protesting and things, 
It was right after the protest. Okay. After the fires and the damage, it was it was like a week or two after that. Okay. Um, and so nobody would answer. Nobody would give me an answer. No one would call me. I couldn't find anyone. Um, I think it was a good three weeks until I got a hold of a police officer. So I sat there for a week waiting for him to wake up from his coma and, and just ask him what happened. But, you know, of course, someone in a coma with that many injuries, when they do wake up, they don't know what's going on. How long did it take for him to be able to somewhat know what was going on? Um, I think I got the full story about two months later. Wow. At that point, how many surgeries had he had? Um, probably like four or so. It wasn't uh, luckily a ton of surgeries, surprisingly. Um, but he had a lot of infections because he has diabetes, so it causes him to have infections easily. And so he was in the hospital for about a month and a half and then insistent living for another month, month and a half. So at that point, you're, I mean, you're ready to pop at that point. Like, because if you were six months pregnant when this happened, this is a couple of months in, mm-hmm. and you still don't even know. At the, With the infections and with surgeries going on, what what additional information did you get about his future, like his health uh, for the future? They said that he would probably be in a wheelchair for a few years, won't be able to use his legs or walk. Um, but then with very extreme physical therapy, he could possibly walk with a cane or a um, walker for the rest of his life. And he's an athletic guy. He was a star, you know, a star athlete growing up. He was very athletic, very strong built guy. So hearing that was, for him is extremely hard for him to wrap his brain around that he will never be able to do the things he used to at the level he used to. Well, that also, I mean, that his entire life changed, but also your entire life changed because you have, you already have a little kid. I don't know how old your first kid is. I don't, but I'm going to guess young. Six. Yep. You have a baby on the way, which is, One baby alone is a handful, and now you're going to have to help, obviously, take care of your husband because this is all new to him. So to go to not be able to walk, I'm going to guess, is very life-changing for all of you. Yeah, being the dad that he wanted to be is now gone in his head, and it's gone in mine. I mean, I had – right now I have to – I'm the sole caretaker of – both my kids and I mean, he does what he can but it's very limited right now he sleeps in a, um, a hospital bed in our living room with you know and is still in a wheelchair and is in therapy three times a week hoping he can walk again so after two months Lydia what did you finally learn ha- happened so what happened is what we think because this is only what he remembers and we have gotten absolutely basically almost nothing from the police besides you know not really actually just nothing from them um but what happened to him he was angry and drank so he was going to go drink more um 
and he was getting out of his car and there was two people um, standing outside in Minneapolis and he, they um, started yelling at him to give him, to give them his car. And he said no, because he was, wasn't thinking obviously being drunk and said no. And, and um, they pulled a gun on him and he kept saying, no, I won't. And then that's when the, the man let loose and emptied 16 bullets into his body and left him there to bleed to death. Which, if the ambulance didn't show up the five minutes longer, he would have been dead. And they had to defibrillate him. He had burns on his chest from it. Because that's what we think that is. So... I mean, is there any, I mean, you said the police haven't been any help, but does that mean is there any, like, street cam footage, anything to, like, basically, are are you guys at the point where no, these people will just not be found? I mean, I hope they are, but the, the what we have right now is that we have the car, we did prints, so we have their prints, we have their, you know, they left cigarettes in the car, so we have that, and they, we did, were able to have that part, and then also with his he did his own searching and they used his credit card because they stole that stuff from him and they found cameras in the stores that they used because the cameras in the streets were broken from all the rioting. Mm. So there was absolutely nothing to be seen and no cops obviously or police officers going around in that area because at that point it's so dangerous. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the only stuff we had was what he found from these stores that they use the credit cards on. But other than that, it hasn't gone any further because they're so crammed with gun violent crimes that they're not making any progress on it. Were you mad at him? Yeah. There was a lot of anger. A lot, a lot of anger um, towards him. And he's paid dearly for a mistake he never thought would ever turn into something like this who wakes up and says I'm gonna I'm gonna drink today I'm gonna relapse and then I'm gonna go get in a fight with somebody at a that could be dangerous who knew that would ever happen so I have to come to terms with the idea that this wasn't obviously on purpose and he's paid so dearly with his life and his future for this one mistake that he made I know that and and I I've like I worry what I say sometimes because I never want to come across as like I don't want to but I know that when you chose to be in a relationship with someone this is anyone if you choose to be in a relationship with someone who has addiction you know what you're potentially taking on there is always a potential for relapse but you obviously hope for the best for the person you're in love with and you see that they're uh, making positive choices they're doing taking you know staying in recovery going to meetings, et cetera, et cetera. So, but, but that doesn't mean that, I mean, because he's paid severely, but also your life has dramatically changed because of his decisions as well. Mm-hmm. And obviously no one would ever imagine something like this would happen, but is, I mean, with all of the plethora of feelings you've had, because I'm sure there have been ups and downs and all kinds of different things you didn't even know you're going to feel is is anger the one that would you say was the prominent feeling oh absolutely i mean it, besides all the other feelings there is the the anger is overwhelming sometimes and 
when it comes to addiction and you mean going to Al-Anon, I'm, you know, doing therapy like that and figuring out that you have to have your boundaries. So, I mean, we have very strong boundaries about this. And if, if a relapse were to happen, it would be something that we would have to apart and see if that's something that we could fix. But it's, there's, you have to have when it comes to addiction and loving an addict, you have to have very strong boundaries and know and stand your boundaries. And we've learned that and, you know, knowing, learning all this stuff about addiction too, so quickly, I've also learned how to put those boundaries up now and know that relapse is so common, unfortunately, and it's part of the process. So you can't be down on them for it either. Unfortunately, it led to this. We never thought it would, but um, you have to be able to forgive, which I'm still learning, haven't forgiven. And he knows that, but the slow process and also, you know, there's that stigma on an addict that they're this low life deadbeat. They're not educated. They're not, you know, but, you know, addiction hits all kinds of people. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, you have money growing up, you had a bad childhood, a good childhood. If you're, you know, uneducated or educated, you I mean, he's had doctors in his um, sober living that he knows lots of doctors who are highly educated and well make a lot of money who are, you know, severe addicts. So it's, he is an amazing, brilliant, so sweet. He's a great father. He's so attentive. He's there all the time. And he's always shown his best side to me, shown a great person. And I take that chance. And because I love him, it's a hard chance to take. And I have to be careful because I have children. But that's what the boundaries and stuff are set up for. What is something you've learned um, through your therapy or your meetings um, that have helped you start the process of forgiveness? Well, we both are, we both have PTSD from this. So in doing PTSD uh, therapy, we both have, he has several therapists. I have a therapist. We are on medications for it. He's on a lot. Um, And we are also doing couples counseling and then we'll be putting, you know, possibly talk having my son talk to a therapist just to make sure he's okay and didn't pick up anything um so that would be kind of our plan at the moment and him doing you know meetings and stuff do you what do you worry about for your future are you worried about your life being so different because you said that um they said that there actually is potential for him to walk again with a cane does it seem like it's still going in that direction that that's a potential yeah, he's walked quite a bit of steps um, with his, his walker, and he's done great. He continues to progress, and now he's swimming and doing those things. So it's progressing pretty quickly, being that he's an athlete already. Mm-hmm. It's caused him, there's helped him a lot in this recovery, a ton. He's working his butt off to, to do it, to make up for all of this, and to get his life back and be a dad for his daughter. He wants to do anything possible to make sure that he can get back. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any fears, though? Of course I have fears. Definitely. Yeah. Tons and tons of fears. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm working through them. Um, that's just kind of a part of being in love with an addict. It's, this is probably yes, a much more extreme case. This doesn't normally happen to people. But it's... It's, there's a lot of fear and he knows it and he's there every time I have some type of panic attack and 
foolproof. It's getting easier. And I have a lot of things set in place that keeps me feeling safe and my kids safe, knowing that they're there if I need to step back. I'm willing to step back if I have to in order to keep my children safe or myself safe. Mm-hmm. But right now, I'm, I definitely feel safe and I'm feeling more hopeful every day progress. Well, I mean, I said it in the very beginning, but the, you know, getting your email and you wrote it like in a, it was a, like a short paragraph too. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to talk to her because I just can't imagine. Like you said, I mean, it, it doesn't, this is something no one could predict would happen in their lives, period. And to go through this and to still be moving forward and seeing the progress you both have made is remarkable. Um, so I, like I'm, I, I know you are too, just like so thankful that he's moving in such a great direction, um, with his health and, and everything. So thank goodness, because you really, you hear it six being shot 16 times. You do not imagine a person, uh, walks away from that. So, uh, yeah, I just, I'm very, uh, wanted to say thank you so much for sharing your story today, Lydia. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yes. And thank you so much for listening to the Heartbroken Podcast.